Chapter 24 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861 1865 by Leander Stillwell Chapter 24 The Soldier's Pay Rations Allusions to Some of the Useful Lessons Learned by Service in the Army in Time of War Courage in Battle This story is now drawing to a close, so I will here speak of some things of a general nature and which have not been heretofore mentioned except perhaps casually. One important feature in the life of a soldier was the matter of his pay, and a few words on that subject may not be out of place. When I enlisted in January 1862, the monthly pay of the enlisted men of a regiment of infantry was as follows. First sergeant, $20. Duty sergeants, 17 Corporals and privates, 13 By Act of Congress of May 1st, 1864, the monthly pay of the enlisted men was increased, and from that date was as follows. First sergeant, $24. Duty sergeants, 20 Corporals, 18 Privates, 16 That rate existed as long, at least, as we remained in the service. The first payment made to our regiment was on May 1, 1862, while we were in camp at Owl Creek, Tennessee. The amount I received was $49.40, and of this I sent $45 home to my father at the first opportunity. For a poor man, he was heavily in debt at the time of my enlistment, and was left without any boys to help him to do the work upon the farm. So I regarded it as my duty to send him every dollar of my pay that possibly could be spared, and did so as long as I was in the service. But he finally got out of debt during the war. He had good crops, and all manner of farm products brought high prices. So the war period was financially a prosperous one for him. And to be fair about it, I will say that he later repaid me when I was pursuing my law studies at the Albany, New York Law School, almost all the money I had sent him while in the Army. So the result really was that the money received by me as a soldier was what later enabled me to qualify as a lawyer. I have heretofore said in these reminiscences that the great standbys in the way of the food of the soldiers of the western armies were coffee, sow belly, Yankee beans, and hardtack. But other articles of diet were also issued to us, some of which we liked, while others were flat failures. I have previously said something about the antipathy I had for rice. The French general Baron Gugot, in his Talks of Napoleon at St. Helena, page 240, records Napoleon as having said, Rice is the best food for the soldier. Napoleon, in my opinion, was the greatest soldier that mankind ever produced. But all the same, I emphatically dissent from his rice proposition. His remark may have been correct when applied to European soldiers of his time and place, 
but I know it wouldn't fit Western American boys of 1861-65. There were a few occasions when an article of diet was issued called desiccated potatoes. For desiccated, the boys promptly substituted desecrated, and desecrated potatoes was its name among the rank and file from start to finish. It consisted of Irish potatoes cut up fine and thoroughly dried. In appearance, it much resembled the modern preparation called grape nuts. We would mix it in water, grease, and salt, and make it up into little cakes which we would fry, and they were first-rate. There was a while when we were at Bolivar, Tennessee, that some stuff called compressed vegetables was issued to us, which the boys almost unanimously considered an awful fraud. It was composed of all sorts of vegetables pressed into small bales in a solid mass and as dry as threshed straw. The conglomeration contained turnip tops, cabbage leaves, string beans, pod and all, onion blades, and possibly some of every other kind of a vegetable that ever grew in a garden. It came to the army in small boxes, about the size of the Chinese tea boxes that were frequently seen in this country about fifty years ago. In the process of cooking, it would swell up prodigiously, a great deal more so than rice. The Germans in the regiment would make big dishes of soup out of this baled hay, as we called it, and they liked it, but the Native Americans, after one trial, wouldn't touch it. I think about the last box of it that was issued to our company was pitched into a ditch in the rear of the camp, and it soon got thoroughly soaked and loomed up about as big as a fair-sized haycock. Split peas were issued to us more or less during all the time we were in the service. My understanding was that they were the ordinary garden peas. They were split in two, dried, and about as hard as gravel but they yielded to cooking, made excellent food, and we were all fond of them. In our opinion, when properly cooked, they were almost as good as Yankee beans. When our forces captured Little Rock in September 1863, we obtained possession, among other plunder, of quite a quantity of Confederate commissary stores. Among these was a copious supply of jerked beef. It consisted of narrow, thin strips of beef, which had been dried on scaffolds in the sun, and it is no exaggeration to say that it was almost as hard and dry as cottonwood chip. Our manner of eating it was simply to cut off a chunk about as big as one of our elongated musket balls, and proceed to chaw. It was rather a comical sight to see us in our cabins of a cold winter night, sitting by the fire, and all solemnly chawing away in profound silence on the Johnny's jerked beef. But if sufficiently masticated, it was nutritious and healthful, and we all liked it. I often thought it would have been a good thing if the government had made this kind of beef a permanent and regular addition to our rations. As long as kept in the dry, it would apparently keep indefinitely, and a piece big enough to last a soldier two or three days would take up but little space in a haversack. Passing from the topic of army rations, I will now take leave to say here, with sincerity and emphasis, that the best 
school to fit me for the practical affairs of life that I ever attended was in the old 61st Illinois during the Civil War. It would be too long a story to undertake to tell all the benefits derived from that experience, but a few will be alluded to. In the first place, when I was a boy at home, I was, to some extent, a spoiled child. I was exceedingly particular and finicky about my food. Fat meat I abhorred and wouldn't touch it. And on the other hand, when we had chicken to eat, the gizzard was claimed by me as my sole and exclusive tidbit, and Leander always got it. Let it be known that in the regiment these habits were gotten over so soon that I was astonished myself. The army in time of war is no place for a sissy boy. It will make a man of him quicker, in my opinion, than any other sort of experience he could undergo. And suffice it to say on the food question that my life as a soldier forever cured me of being fastidious or fault-finding about what I had to eat. I have gone hungry too many times to give way to such weakness when sitting down in a comfortable room to a table provided with plenty that was good enough for any reasonable man. I have no patience with a person who is addicted to complaining or growling about his food. Some years ago there was an occasion when I took breakfast at a decent little hotel at a country way station on a railroad out in Kansas. It was an early breakfast for the accommodation of guests who would leave on an early morning train, and there were only two at the table, a young traveling commercial man and myself. The drummer ordered, with other things, a couple of fried eggs, and that fellow sent the poor little dining room girl back with those eggs three times before he got them fitted to the exact shade of taste to suit his exquisite palate. And he did this, too, in a manner and words that were offensive and almost brutal. It was none of my business, so I kept my mouth shut and said nothing. But I would have given a reasonable sum to have been the proprietor of that hotel about five minutes. That fool would then have been ordered to get his grip and leave the house, and he would have left, too. I do not know how it may have been with other regiments in the matter now to be mentioned, but I presume it was substantially the same as in ours, and the course pursued with us had a direct tendency to make one indifferent as to the precise cut of his clothes. It is true that attention was paid to shoes to that extent at least, that the quartermaster tried to give each man a pair that approximated to the number he wore, but coats, trousers, and the other clothes were piled up in separate heaps, and each man was just thrown the first garment on top of the heap. He took it and walked away. If it was an outrageous fit, he would swap with someone if possible, otherwise he got along as best he could. Now in civil life I have frequently been amused in noting some duddish young fellow in a little country store trying to fit himself out with a light summer coat or something similar, he would put on the garment, stand in front of a big looking-glass, twist himself into all sorts of shapes so as to get a view from every possible angle, then remove that one and call for another. Finally, after trying on about every coat in the house, he would leave without making a purchase, having found nothing that suited the exact 
contour of his delicately molded form. A very brief experience in a regiment that had a gruff old quartermaster would take the tuck out of that bull brummel in short order. Sometimes I have been, at a late hour on a stormy night, at a way station on some jerk-water railroad, waiting for a belated train with others in the same predicament. And it was comical to note the irritation of some of these fellows and the fuss they made about the train being late. The railroad and all the officers would be condemned and abused in the most savage terms on account of this little delay, and yet we were in a warm room with benches to sit on, with full stomachs, and physically just as comfortable as we possibly could be. The thought would always occur to me on such episodes that if those kickers had to sit down in a dirt road in the mud with a cold rain pelting down on them and just endure all this until a broken bridge in front was fixed up so that the artillery and wagon train could get along, then a few incidents of that kind would be a benefit to them and instances like the foregoing might be multiplied indefinitely. On the whole, life in the army in a time of war tended to develop patience, contentment with the surroundings, and equanimity of temper and mind in general, and from the highest to the lowest, differing only in degree, it would bring out energy, prompt decision, intelligent action, and all the latent force of character a man possessed. I suppose in reminiscences of this nature one should give his impressions or views in relation to that much-talked-about subject, courage in battle. Now, in what I have to say on that head, I can speak advisedly mainly for myself only. I think that the principal thing that held me to the work was simply pride and am of the opinion that it was the same thing with most of the common soldiers. A prominent American functionary some years ago said something about our people being too proud to fight. With the soldiers of the Civil War it was exactly the reverse. They were too proud to run, unless it was manifest that the situation was hopeless, and that for the time being nothing else could be done. And in the latter case, when the whole line goes back, there is no personal odium attaching to any one individual. They are all in the same boat. The idea of the influence of pride is well illustrated by an old-time war story as follows. A soldier on the firing line happened to notice a terribly affrighted rabbit running to the rear at the top of its speed. "'Go to it, Cottontail,' yelled the soldier." I'd run, too, if I had no more reputation to lose than you have. It is true that in the first stages of the war, the fighting qualities of American soldiers did not appear in altogether a favorable light. But at that time, the fact is that the volunteer armies on both sides were not much better than mere armed mobs, and without discipline or cohesion. But those conditions didn't last long and there was never but one bull run. Enoch Wallace was home on recruiting service some weeks in the fall of 1862, and when he rejoined the regiment he told me something my father said in a conversation that occurred between the two. They were talking about the war, battles, and topics of that sort, and in the course of their talk Enoch told me 
that my father said that while he hoped his boy would come through the war all right, yet he would rather Leander should be killed dead while standing up and fighting like a man than that he should run and disgrace the family. I have no thought from the nature of the conversation as told to me by Enoch that my father made this remark with any intention of its being repeated to me. It was sudden and spontaneous, and just the way the old backwoodsman felt. But I never forgot it, and it helped me several times. For, to be perfectly frank about it, and tell the plain truth, I will set it down here that, so far as I was concerned, away down in the bottom of my heart, I just secretly dreaded a battle. But we were soldiers, and it was our business to fight when the time came. So the only thing to then do was to summon up our pride and resolution and face the ordeal with all the fortitude we could command. And while I admit the existence of this feeling of dread before the fight, yet it is also true that when it was on, and one was in the thick of it with the smell of gunpowder permeating his whole system, then a signal change comes over a man. He is seized with a furious desire to kill. There are his foes right in plain view. Give it to him. D dash them. And for the time being, he becomes almost oblivious to the sense of danger. And while it was only human nature to dread a battle, and I think it would be mere affectation to deny it, yet I also know that we common soldiers strongly felt that when fighting did break loose close at hand, or within the general scope of our operations, then we ought to be in it, with the others, and doing our part. That was what we were there for, and somehow a soldier didn't feel just right for fighting to be going on all around him, or in his vicinity, and he doing nothing but lying back somewhere, eating government rations. But all things considered, the best definition of true courage I have ever read is that given by General Sherman in his memoirs as follows. I would define true courage, he says, to be a perfect sensibility of the measure of danger and a mental willingness to endure it. Sherman's Memoirs, Revised Edition, Volume 2, page 395. But I will further say in this connection that in my opinion, much depends sometimes, especially at a critical moment, on the commander of the men who is right on the ground or close at hand. This is shown by the result attained by General Milroy in the incident I have previously mentioned, and on a larger scale, the inspiring conduct of General Sheridan at the Battle of Cedar Creek, Virginia, is probably the most striking example in modern history of what a brave and resolute leader of men can accomplish under circumstances when apparently all is lost. And on the other hand, I think there is no doubt that the Battle of Wilson's Creek, Missouri, on August 10, 1861, was a Union victory up to the time of the death of General Lyon, and would have remained such if the officer who succeeded Lyon had possessed the nerve of his fallen chief. But he didn't, and so he marched our troops off the field retreated from a beaten enemy, and hence Wilson's Creek figures in history as a Confederate victory. See The Lion Campaign by Eugene F. Ware, pages 
324 to 339. I have read somewhere this saying of Bonaparte's, an army of deer commanded by a lion is better than an army of lions commanded by a deer. While that statement is only figurative in its nature, it is, however, a strong epigrammatic expression of the fact that the commander of soldiers in battle should be, above all other things, a forcible, determined, and brave man. End of chapter 24